ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. Good morning. Welcome to AM. It's Thursday the 22nd of February. I'm Sabra Lane coming to you from Nipaluna. Hobart. Britain's High Courts wrapped up a two-day hearing over whether WikiLeaks founder Julian Assange should be given a final chance in the UK's justice system to appeal his extradition to the United States. Two High Court judges are now considering whether a full appeal will be granted and it's not known when they'll deliver their verdict. Australian Independent MP Andrew Wilkie was at the court and outside it, he said the US should drop the case and bring the matter to a close. Europe correspondent Steve Kinane reports. On a rainy day in London, hundreds of supporters of Julian Assange gathered outside the High Court for the second and final day of hearings as he seeks leave to appeal his extradition to the US. Among those supporters was Andrew Wilkie, the independent MP who last week successfully moved the motion in the Australian Parliament to recognise the importance of bringing the proposed extradition to an end. Look, I thought it was very important that an Australian parliamentarian uh, come to London, uh, at least for today, to bear witness at what's going on in that courtroom. It's even more important, I think, that there's an Australian parliamentarian here to bear witness, given the events of just last week, when a thumping majority of the House of Representatives voted in favour of the motion that this matter must be brought uh, to an end. Inside the court, lawyers for the US argued that Julian Assange was not just practising ordinary journalism. Instead, he was conspiring with Chelsea Manning to unlawfully obtain classified material and trying to recruit others to do the same, including hackers. They also made the case that the WikiLeaks founder put informants' lives at risk by publishing the unredacted names of people in authoritarian countries who had been sharing information with the US. Outside the court, Andrew Wilkie, himself a former intelligence official, disputed that argument. So that's just a, that's just a furphy by the US government now to say that Julian Assange uh, uh, put people at risk and perhaps even put people uh, had people killed. The official inquiries say that is not the case. Yesterday, lawyers for Julian Assange made the case that the relevant treaty prohibited extradition to the US for political offences. Today, lawyers for the US argued that legislation introduced in the UK in 2003 omitted that exemption. Claire Dobbin KC, acting for the US, said Mr Assange was being prosecuted for his actions, not his political opinions. Jennifer Robinson, a member of Assange's legal team, told AM outside the court there is a compelling case for an appeal to be granted. I think the arguments put forward by our side were incredibly strong and compelling. The court was clearly engaged with them, particularly on the freedom of speech arguments. We heard our counsel give a, a robust defence of the of both Chelsea Manning's protected act, that that was protected by free speech as a whistleblower, and that Julian in receiving and publishing that information has engaged like the rest of the media. A decision from the two High Court judges over granting an appeal could come within weeks. The US Justice Department was contacted for comment. This is Steve Kinane in London for AM. The mercury is set to soar across the country today with most capital cities getting well into the 30s and there's a total fire ban across most of Victoria. 
Weather Bureau Senior Meteorologist Miriam Bradbury says there'll be dangerous conditions in some states because of strong winds. We're concerned about western and central Victoria and southeast South Australia. So most of those districts across those areas are at extreme fire dangers, triggering fire weather warnings, really just telling us that the conditions are ripe for dangerous fire weather. So it's just a day to be really, really careful about anything fire related. For some, it's a continuing heat wave. But sweaty and uncomfortable effects are even greater and potentially catastrophic for some people with disability. In some cases, it can lead to death. Advocates are calling for more support to help the disability community cope with the health impacts of heat. Here's National Disability Affairs reporter Naz Campanella. Deanna Renee used to enjoy summertime, but that was until the heat started drastically worsening her health. The Melbourne woman was diagnosed with multiple sclerosis as a teenager. I experience increased fatigue levels, difficulty walking. Sometimes I can get really confused when I'm out and about in a very familiar place when I get overheated, which could lead to like difficulties in my concentration, my memory or maybe my decision making. The heat can also make getting around harder. I occasionally use a mobility aid in form of a walking stick. If I don't have that and I get overheated, I will stumble to one side. The 34-year-old keeps cool using tools such as an ice ring around her neck and she's lucky to be able to afford to run air conditioning at home. She worries about what might happen if she no longer can or about those who can't afford equipment or the energy costs associated with keeping cool. I would become extremely unwell. I would experience like cramping through your intercostal muscles. It's extremely painful. I've had to be hospitalised for that before when I wasn't able to cool down. Dealing with heat waves is the focus of a letter that's been sent to the Minister in charge of the National Disability Insurance Scheme, Bill Shorten. It was written by Disability Advocacy Network Australia and Sweltering Cities, which campaigns for sustainable communities. It calls for a series of measures to be put in place to better support the community, like working with services providers to ensure their facilities are safe for people with disability in heat waves. The network's CEO is Jeff Smith. We're also calling for a suite of measures to reduce people with disabilities' exposure to extreme heat, including putting air conditioning and energy-efficient technologies in social and disability housing and providing outreach services to check in on and help people with disability in heatwave situations. He says research shows people with disability are hugely overrepresented in heat-related deaths. We do know that climate change will have a disproportionate impact on people with disability. Heat waves and heat-related stress can have a significant impact on the physical and mental health of people with disability. In a statement, the NDIS Minister Bill Shorten acknowledges the concerns raised in the letter and says he's committed to working with the sector on this issue to ensure the needs of NDIS participants are met. He says the letter also recognises the importance of ensuring disability support providers are appropriately trained and prepared to manage their duties to participants in extreme heat conditions. Back in Melbourne, Deanna Renee wants to see more public awareness campaigns so the wider community understands the health impacts on people with all types of disability. These changes are instrumental for people to lead a life of dignity. I think you should never judge a book by its cover. You never want to be judged unfairly when you have something going on that's out of your control. Deanna Renee, who has multiple sclerosis, Naz Campanella reporting. 
Australian researchers from Melbourne's RMIT have created a recyclable water battery. Potentially, it's a major breakthrough as the technology might replace lithium batteries, which can explode or catch fire when they're installed or used incorrectly. Oliver Gordon reports. Emma Sutcliffe researches electric vehicle fires, tracking the frequency of incidents in Australia. Once a fortnight, potentially once a week around Australia, we're seeing major property damage or we're seeing total property loss due to an e-bike or an e-scooter or a smaller battery pack. And while the director of EV FireSafe points out it's much less common for lithium-ion batteries to explode in cars, wherever it happens, it's a serious problem. When a, a lithium-ion battery catches fire, it's called thermal runaway, which means if we've got, uh, let's say, 100 battery cells in a, in a module inside a, some kind of lithium-ion battery pack, uh, the first one will burst and uh, and what will happen is it will heat up, it will short circuit, heat up and it will burst open and the electrolyte within that battery cell vaporises. It was in liquid form but the heat causes it to vaporise and that vapour is highly toxic and highly flammable so that's what's catching fire. It's this problem a team of RMIT university researchers led by Professor Tiayi Ma is looking to solve. The team's new water battery gets rid of a highly flammable electrolyte inside lithium-ion batteries, replacing it with water. So in the traditional lithium-ion battery, the electrolyte is organic molecules. So that's the one carbon-based. It can catch fire, so it can burn. But in the water battery, we don't use carbon-based organic molecules. We, on, we use only near-neutral water as an electrolyte, which is why that is so safe. The batteries aren't powerful enough to fit inside and run an electric vehicle. But Professor Ma hopes they will be eventually. So we can power some smart devices like smartphone, uh, watch, iPad, toys, toys for, for, for kids, because that's some cases we really care about the safety of the batteries because the kids are playing it. So that's now. When we look forward 10, maybe 15 years, where would you like this technology, this water battery technology to go? What would you like it to be powering? I would like to be powered from small scale to medium size to large scale. Small scale is still the smart devices. Medium scale, I would say the power batteries in electric vehicles, in scooters, and large scale, I'm talking about solar, uh, solar farm, wind farm, energy storage. He sees the larger scale energy storage, like at a solar farm, as the most achievable of those goals in the short term. Large-scale energy storage, where we don't really care about the energy density, we have plenty of space. As Emma Sutcliffe continues to spread her EV battery safety message. If you hear a loud popping noise, please don't try to move that battery pack or that bike or scooter. Evacuate everybody from that area and call for help. Call triple O. She's pleased to see an innovation that could make the widespread use of batteries a little bit safer. We welcome all this innovation. It's it's fantastic to see, um, you know, battery technology continue to improve, not just from a safety perspective, but also from an energy density perspective. So we can, you know, use these batteries uh, far safer and for much longer. That's Emma Sutcliffe from FireSafe EV, ending Oliver Gordon's report. Business groups, universities and unions are worried that proposed laws designed to stop defence officials and public servants from leaking Australian military secrets are too broad and could have unintended consequences. Under the plan changes, military personnel and civil servants could face up to 20 years jail if they work in an unauthorised capacity for another country or military. With more, here's Jacqueline Breen. 
The proposed laws are the response to revelations two years ago that Australia's former military fighter pilots were being headhunted by Beijing to help train Chinese aviators. That sparked a Defence Department review, which remains classified, and led to the Safeguarding Military Secrets Bill. It would make it an offence for former defence staff members to undertake work for a foreign government or military without securing approval. Closing a loophole, according to Neil James from the Australia Defence Association, this existed for too long. If we send members of the Defence Force into harm's way on the nation's behalf, we at least owe it to them that Australians who, for various reasons, for money or for ideology or for uh, you know, terrorist sympathies, make their job harder to do. And most people would assume we already had such laws. When he introduced the laws to Parliament last year, Defence Minister Richard Miles said they were complex and could be improved by expert input in the committee process. The laws have the backing of spy agency ASIO, which will appear today before Parliament's Joint Committee on Intelligence and Security. But while there's wide support for the bill's aim, a range of other stakeholders have concerns with its current scope. Submissions to the Joint Committee from the Australian Industry Group, the Manufacturing Workers Union and six of Australia's top technology universities all warn that it's currently too broad. Dr Brendan Walker-Munro is a senior research fellow with the University of Queensland's Law and the Future of War Research Group. It doesn't actually say, for example you need to have authority to work for an overseas company um, if you dealt with military secrets of a certain type. It just says, uh, for example, if you wanted to work for an overseas company and you used to work for defence, the minister has to say, okay, in every single circumstance. And that's actually a a really big and really broad uh, type of thing to put in an act without any types of exceptions or fetters. And concerns like that are also prompting calls for greater clarity on who the minister will exempt from approval requirements. The government's indicated that, for example, approval won't be needed to work with Australia's Five Eyes security partners. International security consultant Neil Fergus and his team work with governments around the world on everything from Olympic Games to kidnapping cases. He's also a former Australian diplomat and ASIO officer. It needs to have real commercial care taken to develop the guideline so that we're not unnecessarily handbreaking Australian business with, without achieving any particular benefit for national security. But Neil James from the Australia Defence Association isn't concerned about impacts on legitimate business. No, because there's sufficient ministerial discretion um, to cover instances like that. And we've got laws that uh, make a defence for you to go overseas and serve with a foreign terrorist organisation. And we really need to tighten up our laws, making it a defence to go overseas and serve in any manner. Uh, which is injurious to Australia's interests and the people who have to enforce that interest uh, in armed combat. Federal Labor MP Peter Khalil, who chairs the Joint Intelligence and Security Committee, has said the hearing will examine potential impacts of the bill to ensure it appropriately manages potential risk. Jacqueline Breen. A program designed to help military veterans cope with mental illness is having success by taking former soldiers back to the place where they experienced their trauma. Thousands of Australians served in East Timor as part of an operation to help the nation when it gained independence from Indonesia. For many, it's left lasting mental scars, some highlighted in the Royal Commission into Veteran Suicide, which is preparing for its final hearings next month.
Marion Farr brings us the story of one veteran who, after a long and difficult battle with mental illness, has found peace in the place where he expected it least. Michael Jeffrey's deployments to Timor-Leste left him with lasting scars. I was hurting inside. I didn't tell anyone. I kept it all to myself. I didn't see a way forward. As a soldier in the Australian Army, he was sent there three times on peacekeeping missions in the early 2000s. Back then, Timor-Leste was recovering from a brutal Indonesian occupation that saw tens of thousands of people killed. Although the country had finally gained independence, it was crippled by poverty. The effects were devastating. Seeing children asking for, for water, aqua, you know, aqua mister, like all of us Australian soldiers witnessed this. But for me, that, that really stayed with me. After leaving the army in 2008, the former soldier's mental health took a turn. I, I was diagnosed through a... Um, a psychiatrist that I have PTSD, anxiety and uh, major depressive disorder. Michael Jeffrey's marriage broke down, he lost his house and it felt like everything was falling apart. I didn't think I'd be happy again. I honestly didn't. Everything changed when he decided to go back to Timor-Leste in 2022. My first deployment to this country was what affected me the most that I would come back here to find my happiness and, and to feel inner peace. I, I, didn't, <laughs> I didn't expect that at all. The trip was run by an organisation called Timor Awakening, an Australian NGO that supports veterans after they leave the military. Michael Stone is the program's director. We've been going for over seven years now, uh, taken over 500 veterans on programs. Participants help build schools, visit historic sites and connect with Timorese locals who fought for their country's independence. The Timorese veterans uh, themselves went through 24 years of incredible trauma and suffering and they're role models to us in resilience. These, these people have, have lived through terrible, terrible times and are still moving forward, still wanting peace. When Michael Jeffries returned to Australia, he struck up a friendship with a Timorese woman on Facebook. Soon, he was back on a plane. And I said to Bella, I'm, I'm coming back. I'm, I'm, I flew over on my own. I came straight back and we uh, met at the airport with all the family. Herself a survivor of the occupation, Bella Mosquita always admired the Australian troops who served there. For us kids, that time you are our hero, like you save us. The pair are now married and starting a new life together in her remote village. Now, life is amazing. Life is it's positive. I'm, I'm extremely happy and um, I'm at peace. I have inner peace. While he's found healing, others like him are still doing it tough. In March, Australia's Royal Commission into Veteran Suicide will begin its final public hearing in Sydney. Michael Jeffries wants programs like Timor Awakening to be available to all Australian veterans. I honestly believe that this program, the Timor Awakening program, should be a part of the transition from service into civilian life. 
Veteran Michael Jeffries ending that report by Marion Farr. And if you're a veteran or serving member and need help, you can call Open Arms, a free confidential counselling service at 1800 011 046. That's AM for today. Thanks for your company. I'm Sabra Lane. Hi, I'm Sam Hawley, host of the ABC News Daily Podcast. As the second anniversary of Russia's invasion of Ukraine approaches, Russian soldiers have captured the city of Avdivka. So as the war enters its third year, is there really a chance Ukraine could still win? Today we speak to a Ukrainian woman in Kyiv about what life looks like now and a military analyst on what to expect next. Look for the ABC News Daily Podcast on the ABC Listen app.